Hey everybody, I just wanted to remind you that we have a Patreon. If you are in a position to support one of your favorite podcasts, find us at patreon.com slash whyourdads. You are able to do so. There are bonus episodes that come out almost weekly and uh, I think you'll enjoy it. They're kind of just conversational chats between Sarah and I talking about things, sometimes dad related, sometimes not. You know, it's like just tuning in to our friendship. If you're not able to do so, uh, we totally understand. It is uh, rough out there financially. These are rough, rough times. We're just happy to have you along for the ride. All right, let's get into this. Hello, Sarah Marshall. Hello, Alex Deed. Here we are. It is the end of the year. I'm very proud of us. (laughs) You've had a big year. I had a big year. I think all of us had a big (laughs) year. All of us had a big year. Uh, There's this thing happening on Twitter right now. I don't know if this is important anywhere but Twitter, where someone who has a relatively small account was like, has anyone noticed that, I guess she must be pronouncing it like Hilaria Baldwin, that Alec Mm. Baldwin's wife has been pretending to be Spanish, like pretending to be from Spain for like 10 years and then had all this evidence. And you're like, yeah, she's... Pretending to be from Spain, all right. And then she made a statement about it where she was like, I'm not from Spain, but blah, blah, blah. It's the culture is very important to me and my family. And we're raising the children bilingually, all this stuff. And I was just, I was thinking about it and I was tweeting like, maybe, you know, because the only person this reminds me of is Mandy Patinkin and the Princess Bride. <laughs> and I was like, maybe Mandy Patinkin was also having a, a hard year and, in 1987 and found solace in doing a Spanish accent, you know, with, with great conviction. And then I was like, is it presumptuous to say that someone's having a hard year? And then I was like, no, everyone is having a hard year. And if anyone isn't having a hard year, there's something horribly wrong with them and that they're like, you could only be having a good year if you're profiteering off of this and don't feel remorse about it. Mm. And that's, I think, a very small category of people. So, yeah, I don't think you're doing that. Right. I guess everyone's having a big Hilaria Baldwin year. (laughs) Well, no, I guess she's been doing it for a really long time, though. So that destroys my earlier point. I don't know. It's I think it's just a year when maybe there are more fake Spanish accents than we started out with in America. (laughs) (laughs) Let's put it that way. You talk in this episode about the movie Moonstruck, which we're about to talk about, and you t- you talk about why you consider it like a Christmas movie, but like, why was it important to bring the year to a close with Moonstruck? And, and then also just tell us who we uh, bring the year to a close with. Well, I felt like Moonstruck was a nice excuse to have Claire Comstock Gay, aka Madame Clairvoyant, which is the name she uses for her horoscopes onto our show kind of in the last couple days before New Year's, because I think just talking to an astrologer about share is a good way to think about your intentions for the coming year if you do that kind of thing. I love that Moonstruck is like, it's a very intensely wintry movie, but it's not about snow and it's not about Christmas and it's not about winter sports or anything like that. It's just about a bunch of people in a very cold city all somehow in a very short period of time being able to let go of their beliefs about who they are supposed to love and accept themselves and each other in a really wonderful way. It's, it's, I think I describe it in this episode as a kind of feelings jubilee 
it's a movie that really feels like a play, which I think is one of the things I always loved about it. You know, it, it, it parallels with the year in a lot of ways, but it also is an interesting opposition because we noted in this episode that so many of the realizations that happen in this movie happen in an almost like otherworldly lightning quick way for the people. Mm-hmm. Whereas the rest of us have had uh, 10 months of house arrest <laughs> 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 to ideally have had some realizations <laughs> Mm. Or maybe none, maybe no real, maybe, maybe you're someone who uh, benefits from having no realizations this year. Maybe you are the Danny Aiello in the movie and in real mm-hmm. life. And that's who you are in 2020. I don't want to put too much pressure on anybody. Right. Well, sometimes you're just bouncing around helping other people have realizations, you know, like a, a fool in Shakespeare. <laughs> yes. Sometimes that's what you're here for. Normally we start the episode by me asking you what Why Our Dads is about. But since it's the last episode of the year, I'm going to give you a break. Cool. (laughs) Why Our Dads... (laughs) Why Our Dads is a show where we try to figure out our individual and collective baggage by watching movies and kind of talking about the movie a little bit. Yes. (laughs) And also talking about other stuff a lot, a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot little bit of other stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like a ladle full of movie and then you're like and then you get your noodles and then you put in your resentments and then your <laughs> memories and you know your anecdotes and then some movie again and then noodles. <laughs> and then the affairs people in your family had and <laughs> And some some opera. The only thing I regret we didn't talk more about in this episode, and we will talk more about it in a future Say Anything episode, is John fucking Mahoney. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he did get some good time in here, but John Mahoney deserves a lot of love and attention. Maybe we'll do a Frasier aside at some point, too. Oh, yeah. This is one of those movies where there really isn't a weak link casting-wise, which I think are really rare. Like, most movies... There's like a few roles that are really well cast and the rest of the people you're like, okay, or like there's at least a couple people that you're like, why are you here? Who are you married to or whatever? But like (laughs) there are some movies where just like everyone there, you're just just like a joy to watch and they're doing something that feels so suited to to the gifts they have as a performer. And I think To Die For is one of those movies. I just like to mention that whenever I can. And Moonstruck is one of those movies. Like everyone here is so wonderful to watch and there's really not enough time to pay tribute to that. Um, All right. Well, I guess we should just watch Moonstruck and then hope that we get to the other side of the year. Yeah. You know what? I believe in us. (laughs) And I think we're all going to snap out of it. (laughs) I do too. I do too. But I've never, I've never really cared so much for New Year's stuff. In fact, I've often been one of those cynical assholes who every time someone brings up the new year, someone will remind you that nothing is literally changing. Mm -hmm. I have been that person and I'm not proud of it. But in The Sacred and the Profane, there's a discussion about the significance of the new year in in a lot of religious traditions. And this is a summation. For the new year is not a matter merely of a certain temporal interval coming to its end in the beginning of another It is also a matter of abolishing the past year and past time. Indeed, this is the meaning of ritual purifications. There is more than mere purification. The sins and fault of an individual and the community as a whole are annulled, consumed as by fire. 
So let's uh, set 2020 on fire. And let's make bread in that fire. <laughs> Hell yeah. I'm getting married. Again? It's temporary! Everything is temporary! That don't excuse nothing! Do you love him, Loretta? No. Good. When you love them, they drive you crazy because they know they can. A man understands one day that his life is built on nothing. And that's a bad, crazy day. Why do men chase women? I think it's because they fear death. You can't see what you are, and I see everything. You're a wolf. I lost my hand! I lost my bride! Johnny has his hand! Johnny has his bride! You want me to take my heartbreak, put it away, and forget What's the matter with you? Your life's going down the toilet. Playing it safe is just about the most dangerous thing a woman like you can do. In time, you will see that this is the best thing. In time, you'll drop dead and I'll come to your funeral in a red dress. Why didn't you wait for the right man again? Because he didn't come. I'm here. You're late. I don't care if I burn in hell. I don't care if you burn in hell. The past and the future is a, a joke to me now. I see that they're nothing. The only thing that's here... Sarah. Alex. Do you want to talk about what I believe we're going to talk about and who we're going to talk about it with? Yeah. So today we're going to talk about Moonstruck, which is one of my personal Christmas movies. And we're going to be talking with Claire Comstock Gay. Claire, welcome. Hi, thank you. Claire, if you could tell us some things about yourself and also what your experience with the movie Moonstruck is. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Um, So I live in St. Paul, Minnesota. I am an astrologer. I write weekly horoscopes and I just wrote a book called Madame Clairvoyance Guide to the Stars about astrology. But my favorite movie in the (laughs) entire world is Moonstruck. Are these things related? You know, a little bit. Not closely, but loosely. (laughs) (laughs) There are very few movies as concerned with the moon that aren't about like getting to it in some way. It's true. Yeah, it's one of the main main movies in the moon canon, I think. <laughs> I didn't realize that this movie was originally called The Wife and the Wolf. Yeah. Or The Woman and the Wolf. So something along those lines. The Bride and the Yeah. That sounds that sounds like that that makes way more sense. And then I guess the director was like, uh, hey, you know it's more universal than wolves. <laughs> is the moon and then that's where we got this wonderful title you know what you don't have to explain to people when you're telling them about your movie you don't have to clarify that it's not a horror film (laughs) although you would have been able to bring at least sarah or i into it if you called it that movie but i don't know i don't know about mass appeal i mean moons are also important to horror movies like if you're making a cheesy slasher movie throw some moon shots in there and it feels you know like you got a theme i mean thank god they made that pivot because I was shocked that this movie was made for $15 million and made $80 million like in the theater when it came out. And it feels so like not a movie that would have made that much money. I mean, $80 million in 1987 is a lot of money to bring in at the box office. Like that's not like an Indiana Jones movie. You could buy a a really nice house for that back then. I, in some way, I thought that this was a cult movie. I mean, I guess it has a cult following, but it was a big, big movie. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and Claire, how did this movie come into your life? Because I feel like this is something that I just grew up with in a way that speaks to its bigness. And it just was always on TV. And I've been watching it since I was 11. Yeah, I saw it 
first when I was about 11 or 12 and like did not like it at all. I was kind of a kid's kid, I think. There are no kids in this movie, right? It's like a very adult movie about grown-up people. There are literally no kids. I don't think there's even a brief... It's like the women. There's just no kids. There's a lot of talk about various adult men acting like children and babies, but there's no actual ones. Well, and I was thinking that actually when they have John Mahoney lean in and give Olympia Dukakis a kiss, I was like, he looks like a little boy. He looks like a baby. (laughs) Yeah, he does. John Mahoney died at 77 looking like a seven year old dressed as an old man. So you saw this when you were a kid and you're like, nah. And then what happened? And so then much later, um, I would have been maybe 25. I was living in New Orleans and I was going through a breakup. I broke up with someone who was like, you know, it was kind of like the joyful kind of breakup where it's someone who's just really wrong for you and it's good. So I moved out and was living in this scary, <laughs> this really scary, totally haunted house for like a month in New Orleans. There was no Wi-Fi in the house and I was just scared all the time in there. So I went to the library and rented the Moonstruck DVD and watched it every single day for that month and just loved it so much. It's such a great movie to watch when you're like, yeah, like that was the wrong person for me. <laughs> like. I'm doing my thing. This is great. (laughs) And love comes like a comet into your life and you never have any idea when it's going to (laughs) happen. When you saw it in that instance, I mean, outside of obviously the plot of the movie resonating with you, what stood out in those multiple comfort watches? I mean, this is like kind of silly and dramatic, but I also really felt it at the time, right? I was like, I am the wolf without a foot. (laughs) I am the wolf without a foot. I'm like, right, cutting myself off from this relationship, living in this horrible, scary, haunted house. I'm picturing you with no lights, this DVD playing, and there are ghosts. There's like Disney Haunted Mansion ghosts moaning around in the other rooms, and you're just like sitting there watching Moonstruck. That's like truly the vibe that I was experiencing, right? These like really high ceilings everywhere in New Orleans has this haunted energy about it, right? Like there's ghosts and then there's the little blue light of my computer screen. Oh yeah. Sarah, can you, can you just do us all a favor and give a rundown of any of the wolf references that come to your mind from watching this? It starts in like the first 15 minutes when... Cher's character, Loretta Castorini, who's a no-nonsense accountant. And Claire, I once asked you what you thought were the signs of the various characters in this movie, and maybe your thinking has changed since then. But at the time, you said that Loretta was a Capricorn, probably. Do you stand by that? You know, maybe. (laughs) I go back and forth. Tonight on Crossfire, is Cher's character a Capricorn in Moonstruck? (laughs) I love that that's a thing that came back up in conversation eventually between you two is Sarah got to check in to see if Cher was still a Capricorn in Moonstruck. We had this conversation three years ago, so I feel as if, you know, a person evolves in that time and it's very likely that you would come back and be like, I no longer believe Cher's character in Moonstruck to be a Capricorn. (laughs) We evolve, we change. (laughs) She's either a Capricorn or a Taurus. I go back and forth, 100% an Earth sign. Which one? That's the question. As a Taurus, I'm very touched by that. Yeah, and I feel like this is a very earth signy movie because it's about being very stuck in your ways and then deciding to change your mind and then 
changing your mind and completely committing to that. Yeah, and it just being a boom, your mind is changed now. It's not like a process, just like. That's it, that's the reason, yeah. And so the first wolf reference we get is in the first like 15 minutes as Cher's character, Loretta, is making the rounds and goes to pick up some champagne which is a very her, this is like a, a really nice character establishing thing to do. Her boyfriend proposes to her. She's like, get on one knee and give me a ring and do this properly, Danny Aiello. And so he does. And then she takes him to the airport and puts his car in the parking lot and goes to buy herself some champagne to celebrate with, with her parents. Which is just, to me, that sort of, that sets up the character that you're going to be with for the rest of the movie. And then I find everything else believable based on that but in this liquor store and like sweetheart wine or whatever it's called and I remember watching this as a kid and as a kid from Oregon where people are kind of reserved I was like does she know these people (laughs) right I thought that they were family friends for a long time right and because there's another shopkeeper couple who are family and so as a kid I was like is she just related to everybody and everyone looks 1980s New York rough, which is my favorite, too. So they all look kind of related. Because everyone's weathered <laughs> by the same soot and wearing the same, like, acrylic knits. Exactly. Everyone's lumpy and greasy. <laughs> <laughs> this couple who, you know, look like they've been married for, you know, maybe 30, 40 years. And the wife is saying to the husband, I see a wolf in you and I saw a wolf in every man I've ever met or something like that. So that's the first wolf, right? Because he looks at probably a young, attractive woman with hunger. Bad eyes. With bad eyes, yes. These are the two genders, the bride and the wolf. (laughs) So watching this movie this time, it's funny. Like I do this thing with movies where, Claire, I feel like this will makes sense to you from some kind of an astrological perspective. I do a New Year's movie and a birthday movie. So for the past few years, I always watch a movie on New Year's Eve and I always watch a movie on my birthday at some point in the day. And it's like the thing I want to set the tone for the year. And so Moonstruck was my New Year's movie for 2020. And I was like, this year will be about love and chaos and unpredictability and feelings and etc. And instead it was about family and spending six months living with my parents. And I was like, touche. <laughs> the plan always works, but you don't always know what you're asking for or what you're you're guessing that you're going to lean into as time goes by. And I really realized watching it this time because I hadn't watched it since last New Year's. And by the way, my birthday movie this year with Beetlejuice, because I was like, it's about chaos and creativity. And it was like, no, it's about never leaving the house. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) But I watched it. I watched Moonstruck for this recording. And I was like, I have never fully appreciated how completely about family this movie is. Like, it's so completely obvious that it's about family. It ends with a toast to family. I can't think of another movie that's like so about intense romantic kind of Romeo and Juliet love and also about family. I guess Romeo and Juliet, but things don't work out for those kids. You just got to wait till you're in your 30s. There's a Film School Rejects blog post that I sent to you, Sarah, about the argument for this being a Christmas movie. And one is about how it's ultimately about the resilience of family. That's absolutely something I appreciate. And was and was curious about your take as being you know, Cher in this Cher's character in this movie is 37. You are in your 30s and have spent a good portion of this year living with your parents. And I'm curious about how you read the movie this time after that stretch. 
Yes. Good question. I was going to ask you, like, as you get deeper into your 30s, you more and more rarely see fictional characters who are exactly your age. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I was like, shares my age. I know. There's so few, like, iconic 37-year-olds in media. Loretta Castorini is my feeling about all the time I spent living with my family this year. Because essentially, you know, I was in Alaska in the first week of March when it became clear to me and to Disney World that things were getting really serious. And I was going back to Portland where my parents are because I was going to go on just a week-long trip there. And so I flew down and I was like, you know what? I have this feeling that if I don't leave right now, (laughs) I'm not going to get out of here safely. And if I leave right now, I'm not going to be able to get back here safely. And so the decision was based, you know, initially what I told myself was like, my parents are old this is going to be crazy. Like, I'm going to stay here and take care of them. And also, obviously, in retrospect, I wanted to stay there so they could take care of me. That's bold of you to admit. And it's the truth, I'm sure. I'm only 32 (laughs) years old. (laughs) Cher's character's husband was getting hit by a bus at that age. I know. Well, I guess I'm an underachiever, like all millennials. But... It's interesting to me, too, though, the timing of everything, because I I feel like this is really I'm not trying, I think, excessively to bring this back to astrology. I just feel like a lot of things really do relate to how astrology plays in our lives. And Alex, the reason I thought to ask Claron, too, was A, we wanted to do Moonstruck and B, you texted me randomly and we're like, astrology makes sense to me for X, Y and Z. And I was like. I agree. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I didn't realize there was going to be a fruit to that random text, but I'm glad that it happened. What did you say in that random text, by the way? Overall, I am an occasional believer in things that I can't see in front of me. Mm. There are times in my life when like I see symbols and patterns more clearly than others, and that dictates sort of how I make decisions. And I think the thing that I said about astrology is I think like every argument against new atheist argument against astrology is silly Mm -hmm. because regardless of what the foundation is, and there's, there's literally thousands and thousands of years of foundation. It is a thing that was through the initial sort of like study and, and foundation of it being, you know, a series of patterns that are important to humans. It came out of humans. The desire to understand those patterns came out of us. And that's why it keeps resonating with us sort of over and over and over again. Like Spielberg movies. <laughs> yeah, precisely. And so it's extraordinarily significant and it's the reason it has lasting power. And I think, what's the guy's name who made Family Guy? Um, Seth MacFarlane? Yeah, no, like Seth MacFarlane oh. is like, is a <laughs> weird crusader against the significance of astrology and I'm like if you're on the fence about astrology doesn't that make you want to give astrology a little bit of the benefit of a doubt (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah, absolutely and just for me I'm like you're missing the fucking point like this is part of being a human and the desire to understand these things as part of being a human and that's why we're still talking about it today and that's why as an observational science and an understanding of sort of how the world works, it exists in the first place. So I feel like there should be an astrology section on every episode of the show. So I feel so blessed that we have Claire here to talk about these things. I know, right? Don't you want to go back and be like Royal Tenenbaum? What about him? Like Ethelene? Yeah. Yeah. Who are these people? (laughs) 
Yeah, Claire, tell it like like you know, I mean, obviously it would be fucked for us to ask you to give us a chart breakdown of everybody on the in the movie, but tell us about these people and their relationships with each other. It's so unique, especially in a romantic comedy. Yeah, it's funny. I definitely right, I don't always when I'm like watching a movie, I don't always get these strong astrology feelings about them, but when I do, it's like really strong, right? And so for this one, like I really think the Loretta Ronnie relationship, it's very much like an earth water relationship. Earth is all about practicality and kind of being grounded. And water is all about the like flowy, squishy emotions that you feel. And right, which is their whole thing kind of. Cher wants to do everything right this time. She's this accountant. She's like <laughs> yelling at old undertaker guy about the mustard on his tie, right? Speaking of evidence for Cher being a Taurus, like I kind of always forget that she does this and I'm surprised anew every time I watch it. She goes to confront her new fiance's brother, Ronnie. There's bad blood between them. And so she goes to talk to Ronnie, played by Nicholas Cage, about it. And then he responds in a water sign kind of a way. He gets really <laughs> angry and cries at the same time. And then she invites him up to his apartment upstairs so she can cook for him. And she makes him a steak and she makes herself a little serving of spaghetti, which is like, I don't know, put that in the Taurus evidence if you want. <laughs> if Ronnie's a water sign, does that make his brother an earth sign or what have we determined who he is, who Aiello is? You know, Aiello could be an earth sign. He could also be like the worst possible version of a Libra. <laughs> Right. Where it's like, like, I love Libras. You know, I don't want to call him anything because he's such a little dweeb. Kind of. It's a little bit offensive. And I think the kind of astrology that people assume you mean when they have negative stereotypes about it is that because there is a lot of kind of, I think, newspaper astrology like this. It's like, Taurus, you're boring. Scorpio, you cheat on everybody. Is he that kind of a Libra? <laughs> the reductive, ridiculous kind. <laughs> Right. Like who but a Libra would like go to your dying mom and she says, don't marry your girlfriend. And he goes, OK, mom. <laughs> <laughs> they have an 800 year age gap between the two of them, those brothers. You know, I'm sure it's just very different relationships. Oh, my God, dude. His relationship with his mom is so beautifully fucked. <laughs> I like how Cage does not care about their mom, apparently. Like, he's, he's unmoved. I just I just read an interview with ILO where Danny ILO did not like this movie outside of the fact that it made him a lot of money. Huh. And didn't like it for two reasons. In his words, in so many words, was like, he didn't want to look like a pussy back home. Like that was like <laughs> what he said. It, it was like, it could be dangerous for me to be seen as like a weak guy. Like, oh my gosh. Like, anyone's going to watch Moonstruck and be like, Danny Aiello is a pussy. Like, he didn't care about looking like a racist and do the right thing. Whatever. It doesn't matter. But the other thing was that he's like, what, the audience is supposed to believe that Cher is going to leave me for Nicolas Cage? Uh, yeah. For fucking sure. That's amazing. He's like, the audience would know that would never happen. <laughs> This is the kind of thing like when Trump was running for president before he had poisoned every well in our nation. I think it was possible for people to feel that they could look at him disinterestedly and be like, you know, I envy his confidence. And it's like, I think we can all agree now that that's not confidence. That's not something else. Like if you're 1987 Danny Aiello and you look at Nicolas Cage and you're like, how on earth could a woman 
choose that over me. It's like, that's not confidence. I mean, I guess we should talk about the fact that Nicolas Cage in this movie is really, really special. Like, he's been (laughs) with us now as an actor for a very long time. We've seen many ages of Cage. He was 22 here. Oh, baby. He's so young. He hated that he did this movie at the time because all he wanted to do was like punk and avant-garde film. You can tell that from this performance, and I think that's why he's good in it. I talked on Twitter that we were watching this, and my friend Tasha was like, do you think he just made up that he only had one hand? (laughs) But what he did do, probably because the original title, is he talked in a wolf voice for the first couple days. What is a wolf voice? Oh, I was thinking he was like, they got the dailies and they were like, dude, we just can't do this anymore. (laughs) Well, hello there. It's been a long time. How am I doing? Well, I'm doing fine. It's been so long now, but it seems like it was only yesterday. Oh, ain't it funny how time slips away? about your take on Nick Nicholas Cage's character in this. Who is Ronnie Camareri? Every time I watch this movie, it's like disturbing to me and new that he's so handsome in this. We've really <laughs> forgotten. He's fucking hot. He's so hot in this movie. This is a handsome man. Mm. I'm shocked. I'm shocked that he was a handsome man. Right, I go back and forth between thinking he's a Pisces, which is like super emotional. I lost my hand. I lost my bride. Like, that's Pisces stuff. Like, the world conspired against me. (laughs) Or thinking he's a Scorpio. 
And Scorpio is really the like when he after the opera and they're outside his apartment and it's snowing and he does his whole speech about like, oh, I yeah. don't care if I go to hell. I don't care if you go to hell. Get in my bed. Like that is a Scorpio. <laughs> being a full on Scorpio. Mm-hmm. I love that line. I don't care if you go to hell. What a romantic. He's being honest. Something I love about this movie is that they filmed a lot of this in Toronto and like in that scene, they are freezing and it is horribly cold. And I feel like you can feel the cold and the urgency in a lot of this movie that like when people are talking in the dark outside, this movie feels astrological to me and that, and I love movies that do this generally where there's this sort of this short period of time into which all of these characters arrive with their baggage, then they find the right person to meet them and challenge them that Ronnie has been waiting for Loretta to come into his kitchen and tell him his life. And she has been waiting for her boyfriend's younger brother, who she's never heard of, to appear suddenly and carry her to his bedroom. Mm. And neither of them knew this until Danny Aiello was the unknowing conduit between them, which I can imagine him retroactively not liking that that was his whole purpose in this. One of the things I love about the concept of astrology and one of the things I love about the uh, astrology classic Love Signs by, was it Linda Goodman? Linda Goodman. Alex, have you ever read Love Signs? I have not. It's great. It's like this phone book from the 70s. It's every pairing in 70s gender terminology. So it's like Aries, woman, Taurus, man, etc. But like within that lack of choice, they do like every permutation of sign pairing. And what I love about it is that it's like it takes the blame out of the friction in relationships to look at them that way. And if you identify your partner as having recognizably Gemini behavior and then you read something that's like Gemini's need this kind of thing to feel relaxed And if your Gemini does this, like, it means they like you. (laughs) Maybe we're bad innately, or maybe Americans have learned to be bad at conceptualizing the differences between us without making them a way to cast blame on somebody. So if you have two people who live together, and one of them who would be me in this scenario, like, needs to have all of their belongings visible in order to remember they have them and then be able to find them. (laughs) And then if someone else feels very frustrated by clutter, then like you're going to be in a deadlock for the rest of your lives or your relationship if you just need to convince the other person that your way is the right way. And then it may be if you can, you know, find your way to that acceptance through the conduit, through the Danny Aiello filament of saying, my Gemini needs her things in front of her, (laughs) then you can get little baskets and then store things in baskets is what I'm working on for my house. (laughs) I mean, one of the things I like about this movie is it presents a bunch of people and it presents all of their needs and it matches them up based on their needs, not based on their baggage. And then it does not ask for forgiveness for matching up the right people with the right people, even if it means breaking expectations about who those people should have been with. (laughs) It's agnosticism with regard to like, morality with in particular with like with sexual and romantic pairing is so unique in a romantic comedy Hmm, totally like romantic comedies in one way or another like far far right wing propaganda romantic comedies love punishing people for having affairs or thinking about having affairs yes and this is just like you gotta deal with it (laughs) (laughs) well this reminds me of another 
closet Christmas movie with his eyes wide shut. Where <laughs> Alex just did a real life spin exactly. Take. Thank you. <laughs> where I mean, I have only seen it once, like ten years ago, because I was so annoyed by it. But my recollection of it is that Tom Cruise goes on this magical, mystical, Stygian journey through like sex cult New York City. And all of this is inspired by the fact that his wife tells him that one time she felt attracted to another guy and imagined fucking him. (laughs) (laughs) He just gets involved in some shit. (laughs) Yeah, and then he's like, I have to go on a Homeric journey through Sidney Pollock's Nexium cult because I cannot imagine you wanting to have sex with an admiral. I love Sidney Pollock in that movie. He's great. Can I double down on saying that I think that, that Nick Cage's character is a Sagittarius for only one extraordinarily shallow reason, mm. which is there is a line in the lesser of the Beastie Boys oeuvre <laughs> in which Ad-Rock says, I'm a funky soul, I'm a Sagittarius. <laughs> and it just struck me that Ad-Rock's entire personality over the course of all of the Beastie Boys oeuvre is Nicolas Cage in Moonstruck. Oh, I love it. I love it. <laughs> like, that's the character he's playing. That's the character that Kathleen Hanna's husband is playing in 30 years of the Beastie Boys. I want to say one thing about Sagittarius, first of all, and then maybe we can talk about fathers. Yes. <laughs> My take, and I'm. this is a little bit like self aggrandizing as I am a Sagittarius. But to me, like the movie is a Sagittarius. Nobody in it is a Sagittarius, but like the ethos, the vibe, the mood of the whole movie, it's all about kind of restlessness and questing and like figuring things out in a way that's like maybe a little Mm. flaky, a little bit just like, I'm going to do this thing. It's everyone simultaneously saying the heart wants what it wants. Right. (laughs) And it all working out because everyone lets go at once. And it was released in Sagittarius season. December 87. So there you go. It was born in Sagittarius season. I mean, this brings me back to the concept of living with your parents in your 30s because, and to my sort of ideas about astrology, which connect to my theory, at least based on observing myself, that like most of the stuff that I really know, I don't know consciously. And Alex, you know this, like many times I'm like, Alex, I think this. And you're like, yes. I'm like, I have had this epiphany about my life. And you're like, yeah. (laughs) Like, you're always the last to know the obvious things about yourself. And I think that the things that are really going to sort of guide you over time are things that take a while to unfold and, and tend to happen in seasons. And I think also, you know, something that definitely American life has alienated from is the concept of living by seasons and having relationships and journeys that you're on and projects and everything just have, you know, take seasons and have seasons of growth that they have to go through and that they can't be hurried, even if you're used to being able to make things go faster if someone's telling you to hurry. And I find it interesting that last summer I decided that I was going to spend the summer with my parents and then move on. And I was like, I have so many issues with my parents. Like, I just want to get to the point, like spend enough time with them where I can learn how to spend time with my mom and perhaps not be overwhelmed by a feeling of power struggles and resentment and just learn how to enjoy 
these people's company and also to, you know, I don't know, I guess had nebulous ideas about making peace. And like that did happen, but it comes through like saying all the stuff that you're unhappy about, or for me anyway, was about airing grievances and a lot of other stuff, but some airing grievances. And then I was like, well, that was a long summer. Bye. And then <laughs> we got even grievancier last Christmas. And then I came back in March. And then it was like, that was really the trip into the abyss. That was really actually like me feeling the need and I think accepting being pushed in that direction by the circumstances of the world to yell at my parents while they were still alive, which I'm a big advocate of. And like not just to yell and, you know, at nothing and no one to express how I actually felt and then confront that if I could, which I was able to do with my mom, but not with my dad. I feel in retrospect as if I knew well over a year ago that I, well, I knew years ago that I had to first, in order to have any kind of peace with myself first and then with my parents, I had to go far away from them and then eventually had to come back if peace with them was my goal and to actually put in that time. And I accepted putting in that time when the safety of the world made it make sense. Has, one of the things that that has given me is just a sense of like, where do I get my ideas about relationships? And like, what baggage do I bring into relationships? And I also have the sense, <sighs> this really exciting sense of like, come at me because I have talked to my parents about the stuff that we silently agreed to never talk about 25 years ago. So like, I really don't know how much someone could wound me if I've just met them. Having family integrated into the romance to me expresses this idea that's that's become important to me that in order to go in a healthy direction, you have to sort of witness where you came from and understand where you got the ideas that you have. To first think, I won't repeat my parents' mistakes and to then accept, I probably will a little, but I'm going to acknowledge it and work on that. And if you're watching your dad <laughs> having an affair while you're also having an affair with your fiance's brother, then it just makes it it's very clear, which is nice. It's nice when you're given obvious lessons. I appreciate that. And it does happen. Uh -huh. The interesting thing about the way the plot goes down in this movie is this movie is ultimately about three generations of an immigrant family. And we see how the different generations get along with each other. And they also have the luxury that not a lot of people have now, where like a lot of people who have to live with their family live in a very small mm -hmm. unit. And they live in a three-story brownstone, which is... Like the Tenenbaums, but with, with earth tones. Exactly. If you have to live in three generations with your family, three-story brownstone is probably the best way to go. Yeah. One story per generation at minimum. <laughs> no doubt. As a result... We're given this opportunity for one generation to see the other generation make the same, I don't know if it's mistakes, but typically if you fuck up or do something that's perceived as a fuck up, your parents are in a situation where they're separated by geography or separated by emotional geography and create the illusion that there's no possible way they would have done the same thing. And we have a situation in which because of geography and emotional geography, we see, share, do some stuff where one could have some judgment, which is to leave actively be cheating on her fiance with her fiance's brother. 
at the same time that her dad is doing not the same exact thing, but certainly cheating on his wife of three or four decades. Of 52 years, which is what he says, which is means Olympia Dukakis got married when she was four. <laughs> <laughs> of 52 years. And so they have to reconcile that. He has no higher ground on which to navigate or negotiate or berate. And they end up at the same bar. He and... Nicholas Cage end up at the bar for the Metropolitan Opera. The opera bar. Both getting drinks for their gals. <laughs> the, the same opera bar of all the opera bars in all the world. And we haven't even talked about the Met as like something that's here. And just like the fact that that they were like, and let's integrate La Boheme, which perhaps that's Sagittarian also. <laughs> <laughs> But I think beyond, right, there's this kind of intergenerational sense of like making mistakes. But there's also to me, right, this intergenerational sense of everybody in this movie is given the chance to like long for romance Mm. in a way that often, right, like the younger generation is the romance generation. And then the parents are like doing some other (laughs) thing. They're like beyond Mm. it, right? Or they're supposed to be beyond it. And in this movie, everyone has these desires, right? Like desires to be seen, to be looked at, to be like longed for in this kind of wonderfully romantic way. The professor talks about it. He's talking about how he wants to feel like respected, admired, desired. And so he like (laughs) gets this from his young female students, which yikes, okay. Until they all break up with him in the same way, in the same restaurant that he keeps bringing young women to. <laughs> and when they do, he could just drink a glass of vodka. <laughs> and go home to his son, Fraser. <laughs> there's an innate clownishness to wanting romance. And in that clownishness, there's also an innate dignity. And this movie gives mm. all of that to everybody in a way that I think is rare in comedies. Yeah. I agree. And just that you're admitting to deep vulnerability and that saying you want romance means you want to be wanted, you want to be adored, you want to be found attractive, like all of the things that are that feel vulnerable to admit in all sorts of ways. And also that this movie is about old people having sex, which is very important. The way that it's packaged in the movie or commented on is that, you know, Olympia Dukakis is trying to get to the bottom of this question, why do men chase women? And the place that she lands via her conversation with the professor played by John Mahoney is they're afraid of death and it's their way to stay young. And if they stay young, they're at least one step ahead of death. In a way, it kind of treats that as cartoonish. And I understand why, in particular, if you're the wife of 42, excuse me, 52 years who's being cheated on. But also I think that there's a validity there, not of the evasion of death, but like that you want a foot in the younger universe that like you want to be excited in some way. And, you know, I think the answer to almost every tension in every movie is like, just be in a polyamorous relationship, but like, you know, (laughs) especially for like this guy and Miss Dukakis, but the hope to do things that excite you and are romantic, it's totally understandable with regard to everyone in this movie. Totally. Well, it's funny with not to bring it back to astrology again, but before this, I was trying to think what, Cosmo, the dad's sign is. And I just couldn't land on it because the main astrological thing about him to me is like, this is a man who's going through his second Saturn return right now. Like that's his whole thing. 
right? Saturn return is kind of when Saturn returns in the sky to the same place it was when you were born. You have one when you're in your late 20s and everyone always talks about it. That's the one that Gwen Stefani wrote that album about for No Doubt. Oh my God, I guess put that together. Wow. Uh, (laughs) And that's when you're kind of trying to figure out youth, youth is over. I'm an adult now. Like, how am I going to be an adult in the world? And then the second one is all the stuff that Cosmo is going through here where you're like, I am facing down my mortality and it's turning me into a maniac right now. And like my adult years are now ending and my elderly years are beginning. And how am I going to cope with that? And I also love that even his floozy is like a fuzzy, mature lady. She's like a banging old lady. Yes, she is. You know, great job. But I mean, if you're, you know, I know it's hard to maintain perspective when you're in a situation you've been in for a long time. But like if you're lucky enough to be with Olympia Dukakis, (laughs) Uh get your shit together, Cosmo. It's never going to get better. (laughs) (laughs) Right, because I've never thought of this movie before as a dad movie. I've so only had eyes for Cher watching this movie. Yeah. (laughs) This time through, it was really kind of touching to watch it through that lens now. And to watch, right, how badly he wants to be in the Ronnie role in this movie. He wants that so much. And his whole arc is kind of realizing that that is not his role to play right now. Hmm. Yeah, best case scenario, he's a brass salesman. He's a copper salesman. Excuse me. A copper salesman. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Brass, brass is the second best case scenario. Brass works until <laughs> something goes wrong. And something always goes wrong. That's an amazing scene to me, though, because I feel like there is something. We've come back to this theme a few times. I feel like there are comedies that are very good at being kind to their characters by exposing them all the way and by forcing them to expose themselves. And I feel like there's something very like kindly brutal about showing us Cosmo first doing his sales pitch and his job as a plumber, talking to these two whatever the word is for someone who's non-Italian, not Gentile, but, you know, the equivalent of that. They're wasps. Two wasps, yeah. And they're tra- and they're just as tragic as every wasp should be portrayed, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> they are. They're wonderful. It's a wonderful, almost non-speaking role. It's actually kind of like Kevin McAllister's parents. They look yeah. so cheatable. <laughs> they do look like those people. They do, and they're turtlenecks. They're like, like, we just moved from Evanston. <laughs> <laughs> so he gives this pitch and it's it's beautiful, right? It's like it's lovely to watch and how he has to sell them copper pipes, which is all I use. And I guess did a Bernie Sanders impression, which that would be its own. That would be wonderful, too. <laughs> I am asking you once again to use copper pipes. <laughs> um, and then he goes on a date with this lady that he's romancing. We just pan over and he's just telling her what he told these two wasps. And like, that's him showing himself (laughs) in his wheelhouse. And she loves it because if you haven't been married to someone for 50 years, you're more easily enthralled by what they do at work every day. He's describing the hunt. Yeah. Which is fascinating from like an anthropological standpoint. He's describing how he got the deer. I mean, I don't even know what the equivalent is today outside of just like, someone tediously describing an argument they got in on Twitter. You know, like, I don't know what the... It would be that, yeah. (laughs) The postmodern hunt, I have no idea what that is. But first of all, what is Cosmo's dad's name? And second of all, like, what is the meaning of not just having this, like, daughter-father relationship, but then we have 
the the immigrant father uh, who, who who is Italian and speaks barely any English thinks Cosmo's doing the wrong thing the entire movie mm-hmm. and sort of like shares that with his friends and really wants Cosmo to pay for this mm-hmm. wedding, which Cosmo won't do for some reason, is kind of the observer of everyone's behavior. Like, what is the grandfather's role in all of this? I don't know. I love this character so much, right? He's so wonderful. His like 25 dogs crashing around him at all times. <laughs> yes. Alex, what's your favorite line in this movie? I'm confused. The reason I'm confused sticks out to me is because I watched this with my stepfather and my mom for Christmas two years ago. And I don't know why we ended up watching it, but we did. My stepfather, I think, has maybe read one book and it was by someone from Michigan State in the football team. And I think that that's it. That's all he's ever done. And we watched this. And when the grandfather said, I'm confused, he responded to the TV, me too. (laughs) And then he turned to me and said, this is the weirdest movie I've ever seen. (laughs) (laughs) But I love the grandpa because he clearly has this very rich inner life too, right? And it's like, we don't really know what's going on with him, but he like has his old guy buddies and they go kind of stand around in the cold, all bundled up, gossiping in a very low key way about their households. Right. And he like takes his dogs out to howl, they howl at the moon together. Right. He has stuff going on. But what do we know? We see not that much of him, but he has a rich world. He just seems to have a, a, a lovely life and sweet relationships with his family that we don't see that much of. But that he's it's always intriguing when someone is there who is inessential to the plot but who you know the movie would feel incomplete without yeah well i think it's like essential in one way or another to be seen Mm. like there's this character that sees everything happen and like even if it's not significant it's not like significant to the plot Mm -hmm. there's something about just like being observed Mm -hmm. like you know in in one way or another like he is us Mm. because he somehow observes all of this and like none of it like is consequential like maybe maybe you know olympia dukakis gets seen in what appears to be to the grandfather a maybe an adulterous relationship even though she's just like walking with john mahoney there's no stakes but like yeah we're kind of him because we see everything the family has Maybe the best kind of patriarch, which is someone who (laughs) knows what you're doing, doesn't intervene. (laughs) The ideal, loving, disinterested God who you feel like he's not going to do anything to you if he sees you with John Mahoney, but you know that he knows. (laughs) Right, right. Well, and I truly love at the very end where he brings a little glass of champagne over to Johnny, who's kind of sulking a little bit, like, how did this suddenly (laughs) blow up in my face? And he goes and brings them in. And then they have their arms around each other when they're all toasting. Like, that's really beautiful. And he says, you're family now. You're part of the family. Oh, I love that so much. (laughs) Yeah. Dads don't do that very much. (laughs) (laughs) And I love that moment, too, because I feel like Danny Aiello's character and perhaps Danny Aiello himself are lost in this kind of spiral of like, who am I to these people? Like my brother has become my enemy by stealing my woman. And like, and it just sort of cuts through all of the confusion by being like, you are the brother of my granddaughter's fiance. Therefore your family. (laughs) The end. Solved it. (laughs) With Danny Aiello, it's so back to what he said about like, oh, no one would believe 
Cher would choose Nicolas Cage over me. Like he said that and presumably believed it and yet totally sells this like twerpy character, right? Like, yeah. like when he says the line, a man who can't control his woman is funny. <laughs> and he does this horrible little nerdy giggle. Like <laughs> he really sells this is a character who would get dumped for Nicolas Cage. Oh my God. Yeah, that that line is so strange. Yes. Like I was like, oh, this guy, this guy's the worst. It's so weird. Sarah, what do you make of the relationship between Olympia Dukakis and John Mahoney? It's interesting. It, it hit a little bit differently for me this time because, I don't know, I think that as you get older or as I get older, I see more of the gradations of relationships. And so there are relationships in movies that I would see as non-relationships and now see as that was a relationship. It just wasn't meant to last for more than 48 hours, you know, and this one I think is meant to last for about 45 minutes. And I still don't know what purpose it serves in this woman's life, but I know that the right atoms are bouncing around inside of her as it's happening. Does that make sense? Well, right. I think it's totally necessary for her to have this opportunity present itself and for things to kind of clarify and shift in her mind. Like, turns out I do know who I am, <laughs> right? Like, she needed that chance, I think. Mm, yeah. I was John Mahoney's character in that role for all of my 20s. <laughs> and it's sad kind of to see him in whatever age he's in. And, and he's that he's that reason, you know, he kind of describes it as that he's like, my profession used to be interesting and riveting and now it's rote and sort of and now I'm in this situation to pursue youth or, or whatever. But like, I see, you know, the way that you framed it, Sarah, is that is that some relationships are just 40, whatever, 45 minutes, some relationships are 48 hours. And some people are cursed with not knowing that and trying to make those 45 minute 48 hour relationships at least two years long. Mm. And I very much was that person for a super long time. And he still is that person or maybe has reverted to being that person. And I find (laughs) the amount of times I fell in love with people Mm. or tried to prolong that loving magic moment for too long. You know, that's kind of the role that this guy plays. And I find that to be a very, outside of the fact that his method is profoundly creepy, I find that very resonant. And God damn, I wish that I had ended up in a dinner with an Olympia Dukakis who could tell me my life, as Cher says in her, her own exchange, and have it click. We also see the tragedy of this not, resonating with him at all yeah he thinks he can still conquer her Mm -hmm. and she's so appealing and attractive in that she just doesn't let it happen because as she says and as you said claire she knows herself (laughs) yeah i just love that we have two generations of women sitting men down and telling them their lives (laughs) over a nice meal that's always been so powerful to me just her saying like I'm telling you your life oh I love it that he is able to listen and take it in and basically to agree with her you know I feel like this is also a movie about people being able to hear what you have to say to them which is really a problem area (laughs) 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 in human relationships and I don't know we We've talked a lot also about the kindness made possible by comedy. And I feel like this makes me think about the Shakespearean comedy model where like in the Shakespearean comedy, I mean, characters do end up going off unhappy and swearing revenge occasionally. But basically the truth comes out and there's just this grand feelings jubilee 
the truth comes out and people all agree that they see it and it's there. Whereas real life is like the truth comes out, but it's like a carbon monoxide leak where like three people admit that they smell it and everyone else is like, I don't think there's a leak. I think we just have ghosts now and I'm going to be lightheaded for the rest of my life. (laughs) (laughs) That also describes our national dilemma. Yeah. Let's just be lightheaded. It's fine. I wonder how many times someone told me the truth and I was carbon monoxide poisoned. Oh, for me, at least hundreds of times. (laughs) (laughs) This is just an open, an open message to everyone who tried to tell me the truth in my 20s. I'm so sorry, mostly to me, but also to you. (laughs) I'm sorry, too, but also there's no free will, in my opinion. So there was no other way for me. (laughs) Claire, do you have any um, people that you'd like to apologize to? Oh, you know, we can sit here for five more hours and we'll go through the personal Rolodex of people who told me my life. <laughs> Just do a big Christmas apology list. This is an apology from Sarah, Claire, and Alex to everyone who earned it. <laughs> yeah. So I have, I have a question for the two of you, and, and Sarah kind of knows this is coming because we talked earlier, but what's fascinating to me is this movie was a, was a holiday movie in 1987. And it came out on the same week as two other amazing romantic comedies. And those romantic comedies are Overboard and Broadcast News. And uh, they're just vibe wise. It's really strange for movies that sort of like centered on comedy and romance, but kind of mismatched them together. What the fuck was going on in 1987 where these are the three romantic comedies that came out during Christmas? (laughs) (laughs) It's funny because I just watched broadcast news again recently. And when I, I saw that movie for the first time in ninth grade and I was like, wow, a romantic comedy about a lady with a big career. How exciting. I love it. And now I watch it and I'm like, wow, a film about a neurotic woman who constantly rebuffs available men and then regrets it. Great. (laughs) (laughs) Why did I decide to emulate this? (laughs) Are you emulating it or are you seeing it now through your eyes? I think it's that when I was a teenager, Holly Hunter in that movie was this wonderful aspirational figure. And I got that she was complicated and scheduled crying time and everything. But I didn't understand when I was younger that a lot of her problems were about intimacy. Not knowing what to do with yourself when you're attracted to someone whose journalistic ethics you don't agree with. And then you do have someone whose journalistic ethics you do agree with, but you're not attracted to them, but you are going to string them along for a really long time. Just in case. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, and then everyone's just unhappy The entire time. And it is like the most epic blue ball of a movie, (laughs) except for William Hurt and Jennifer Mack, who gets sent to Alaska. Yeah, I just I feel as if that's something that as a kid, I recognized Holly Hunter as just the archetypal 80s lady that I knew as sort of a figure still in the culture and someone who was like clearly under a ton of stress. But that was part of being important. And that was kind of my grasp of it. And now I'm like, this movie is about people experiencing a vast gulf between what they want to want and what they actually want. I'll I'll close with this. I feel like these three movies that you've named are very different from each other, but they all feel like a return of like the 1930s screwball comedy 
where it's men and women navigating romance by being real verbal with each other and having sort of power struggles and stuff. Yeah. I, I mean, I can't speak to overboard, but it's a lot easier to talk to broadcast news, which you just talked about. Yeah. Cause that one's not about kidnapping either. <laughs> the tension between like what you want and what you think you want is saturates this movie. Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, Cher essentially has to navigate that. Cher's dad, Cosmo has to navigate that. Cher's mom ideally is like snap out of it. Uh, oh, haha, that's a quote from this movie that Cher says. <laughs> <laughs> Claire, can you give us, can you give us any insight? I feel like that's the human struggle, right? Is that reconciling what we want with what we think we want and, and trying to be honest with ourselves about those things, if we're lucky. Totally. And I think part of it, like in the romantic comedy genre, right? Ideally. And I think this is in a lot of the like old screwball comedies and then at least Moonstruck. I haven't seen either of these other ones in so many years that I couldn't say anything about it. But I think it's about your own desire, the desire, desire, or what you think you desire. And then it's also finding someone who desires you for who you are versus for who you are trying to be or who you want to be. Right. And so like Danny Aiello wants this buttoned up, like bland version of Loretta. And she needs to find Ronnie who wants this like woman who does her hair and slaps him in the face and goes to the opera, right? It's about like being desired for the full version of yourself. And who's valuable, not just because she tells you not to eat fish before you get on a plane. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, they both want mom in some weird way, yeah. like two poles of mom, which is, you know, fucking boys. I don't know. I feel as if this can come from a number of places, but I, I personally often take what feels to me the productive view that men are boys because they behave that way a lot. And I think also like women are seen as girls for our whole lives anyway, just really capable ones for some reason. And so the fact that men aren't seen as boys, like not in the boys will be boys way, but in the like, you're cranky and you've had a long day and you just stepped on a Lego and that's why you're filibustering right now <laughs> kind of a way. That willingness to see the adult as being motivated by childlike needs and feelings. We all do that as adults because the fact, you know, especially like professional white men have captured society to the point where they can force everyone to tell them that like their ideas make sense and they're being mature about everything. Acknowledging the childlikeness of men is just means acknowledging their humanity in a way that they may not like. Oh yeah, and I like it because the whole movie overall does this and also right within it, the characters, like almost every man in this movie gets called a baby or a little boy yeah. or like something like that. Even Cosmo can see that Johnny is a little baby, right? Oh yeah. <laughs> Johnny Camerary. <laughs> <He's a> baby. <laughs> Sarah, in theory... There's a clear dad in this movie and maybe that's Cosmo and obviously Claire, this goes to you as well. Who is the daddy in this movie? Uh, if not Nicholas Cage. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. I was going to say Cher, but then I was like, wait a minute. If we're going for like daddy energy coming off of the unconquerable matriarch, which I think is a theme that I keep returning to. It goes to the lady who's sitting in her kitchen serving oatmeal to everyone when they come home <laughs> to deal with their drama and who gave us the line, your life is going down the toilet. And I love that scene. I love the scene this movie ends with because I guess I love any movie or TV show that includes a like the chickens have come home to roost right now 
scene. And I feel like that happens a lot in sitcoms, which is probably also why I love sitcoms and in comedies, because this is how comedies end. And also tragedies, like you either all kill each other or you all accept each other. Those are your choices as a family. And so everyone comes back to the Castorini home and they all have oatmeal and just settle it. The daddy (laughs) is the person who has enough oatmeal for everybody who needs to settle their various romantic triangles right now. Uh, Claire, what's your take? I so fully agree with that. (laughs) Not so much because of the oatmeal, but just because of Rose's like total self-possession, right? Mm. Like to me, there's one person in this movie who's truly an adult Mm. and that is Rose. I like Mm -hmm. that. No, I think, I mean, it's, it's a stellar and unshakable argument. My take is it's the grandfather and not for any good reason outside of that, like that scene where he tells Johnny that he's family breaks me every Mm -hmm. time. Like it's just so beautiful and so strangely empathic for this man who we have virtually no dimension (laughs) of. I was just knowing that that's a thing that he would do. And also he's arguing on behalf of his son paying for (laughs) Cher's Mm -hmm. wedding, even though his son has totally ridiculous reasons for not doing it. That man has a really delightful code that none of us understand, but it reveals itself sometimes. And that certainly reminds me of (laughs) my experience with dads. (laughs) I guess being everyone's elder and not pulling your weight, you know, because he just sort of comes in at the very end and he's like, listen, I must speak about this thing that's been (laughs) settled. I bought this brownstone for $5,000 in 1918. I don't have to do anything else anymore. (laughs) (laughs) So, Claire, I... I'm a big fan of your book. And one of the things that it does that I really love about it is that it, I feel like people get sort of turned off of astrology because they see it as something that is going to tell them their life in a reductive and mean way to take out possibility and to take out the sort of, I don't know, the joy of identifying with people for the themes that you can see in your lives and theirs. And I feel like your book is very good at making that feel expansive and exciting and also you have theme chapters for each sign which I love and I was wondering if you could talk about how are you representing some of the signs in your book yeah totally so well thank you first of all that's very kind and very much what I try to do all the time with astrology right and this kind of goes back to Alex's point from earlier that astrology comes from humans right And I think sometimes we're in danger of forgetting that and these meanings get kind of calcified. So it's like Aries, you're aggressive. Taurus, you're stubborn. They're so limited in that way. It's not it becomes not a living thing that comes from humans anymore. But this very reductive little one to one set of correspondences. It turns into a little scantron. Exactly. Like, where's the answer key? (laughs) What's the what's the right answer here? And so I'm writing about kind of myself and also different cultural figures with each sign. So like Aries is all about pop divas with Aries as their sun sign. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's so many of them. We've got Mariah Carey, Aretha Franklin, Celine Dion, like so many Aries, right? And Aries is all about this kind of really intense, assertive fire. And so what does that look like in the world, right? Taurus, you're a Taurus, is about professional wrestlers. <laughs> Alex is also a Taurus. We're birthday buddies. Oh, are you? I remember that John, it's John Cena and Andre the Giant are two of them. Uh-huh. Who else? Like Cancer is about poets. Leo is about movie directors. 
right? And so kind of looking for ways that meaning clumps together in the real world and like, what does that show us and what meaning can we make from it? Well, thank you for bringing that to Moonstruck. (laughs) Thank you for bringing me to Moonstruck. (laughs) It's very much, very much our pleasure. (laughs) You ought to see my blue-eyed Sally lives right down on Shimbone Alley. Number on the gate is a number on the door. Next house over is the grocery store. Stay all night, stay a little longer. Dance all night, dance a little longer. Pull off your coat, put it in the corner. I don't see why you don't stay a little longer. Sitting in the window, singing to my love. Till I heard some from the window up above. Big creeks up and the little creeks level Plow my corn with a double shovel Stay all night, stay a little longer Dance all night, dance a little longer Pull off your coat, put it in the corner I don't see why you don't stay a little longer Don't see why you don't stay a little longer Don't see why you don't stay a little longer Don't see why you don't stay a little longer All right, everybody, that is it for this episode of Why Our Dads. That is it for this year in Why Our Dads. Uh, I want to thank Claire Comstock Gay slash Madam Clairvoyant for being on this last episode with us. This was just a delightful conversation to have with Claire. We want to thank Carolyn Kendrick, who produced this episode. Uh, She produces all of our episodes. She is fantastic and she's a musician. And if you want to find her music, you can find an EP of hers that came out earlier this year called Tear Things Apart. This episode was was such a treat. Features two songs performed by Carolyn. One is Funny How Time Slips Away, which is written by Willie Nelson. It was first recorded by the country singer Billy Walker. And then the other is Stay All Night, Stay a Little Longer, uh, which is a tune written by Bob Wills and Tommy Duncan. It's one that was also performed by Willie Nelson at another time uh, later on in the 70s. It reminds me actually of uh, some friends of ours, Carolyn's and mine, this Western swing band called Big Cedar Fever, who we love and adore and who are great friends and are touring musicians. And it reminds me of all of the touring musicians out there who are, you know, we're all struggling, but God, the arts are just taking a hit. So I'm so, so excited to see everybody who makes music for a living and makes music in front of people on the other side of this thing. If you are able please uh please help out your local musician by supporting their art we are going to take the first week of the year off though that doesn't mean we're not going to have an episode we will have an episode it just won't be a wire dad's episode we're going to find something that'll be of interest to you uh, to listen to next week so that we can have a quick break before we can jump into the first movies of 2021 we are going to kick off the year with our first proper episode uh, being Magnolia. And then we are going to cover, as Sarah says, the Sawniverse. We're going to cover the first seven installments of the movie Saw in one episode, and we're going to use that to talk about 2020. 
in a relatively substantial way. We are then going to talk about the movie Citizen Ruth, and then we are going to close out the month of January by discussing Fargo. All right. That's enough from me. We really appreciate you. Thank you so much for taking this journey with us. I hope you have just a marvelous New Year's Eve. I hope that you're safe. I hope that you don't go to a party. And uh, let's make 2021 a big one, a good one. Uh, let's let's just get through it. <laughs> let's get to the other side. All right. Thanks, y'all. <laughs>